You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Crispin Sartwell, it's good to see you again. Dan Kaufman, good to be here. The audience should know that the reason that Crispin looks so snazzy wearing a suit jacket and everything is because he had to go to a meeting. <laughs> yeah, true. I don't usually dress up for meetings, but I don't know. I just thought I would. And the reason I look like this is because <laughs> <laughs> I'm at home. <laughs> um, so uh, our quick typical introductions, uh, Crispin Sartwell is professor of philosophy at Dickinson College. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, what do you what do you professor. Assist, assistant professor. Associate. Associate, Associate professor. Good. <laughs> At least it means you're past the worst hurdle. Um, what, um, just before we get started, what do you, what, what's on your teaching plate this semester? What are you teaching? Uh, I'm really happy this semester. I've got just two small classes, uh, existentialism and beauty. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm doing some of my favorite texts and some of my favorite, you know, subjects. Now, are those classes that are regularly offered, or are these sort of one-offs? There's a class on beauty? Well, I, I guess I invented that in, you know, 10 years ago or something like that. Uh, I teach every couple of years, so. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's like aesthetics, too, sort of, you know. Or I'm teaching aesthetics right now. Um, yeah. And, um, and also my standard gen ed load. So do you not have to teach a gen ed load every semester? No. We don't have that. I mean, I teach uh, first year seminars. I did last fall, uh, you know, intro classes. But uh, yeah, we don't have that same kind of system, I guess. Yeah, every semester, two thirds of my load is Gen Ed, which which means what? Like, what do you? Two out of three classes are introductory level, where ninety nine percent of the students are taking it for general education credit, not right, 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 not as the start of a philosophy major. Yes, yes. And so um, now I'm not complaining. I like teaching Gen Ed. Um, um, I have to tell you, I find very satisfying the distillation of these sort of major ideas and, and historical figures yes. to a format, formula that anybody can understand. Like to me, that to me is why I like doing public intellectual work. And so I don't resent the gen ed, but what it means is that I really only get to teach one varying content course every semester. So it's aesthetics this semester, next fall, yeah. it'll be philosophy, literature, um, yeah. but, so you know, I, I really feel like, you know, teaching, like say in the graduate, uh, a program with a graduate uh, university with a graduate program, uh, you know, and that sort of thing, or in a very large department, uh, with assistants and things like this. I mean, there's ways where there's places that can take you in your research. You know what I mean? That it's not really possible when you're, it's all undergraduate load, uh, yeah. especially, you know, intro level or whatever. Uh, but I, I, I sort of agree with that whole but thing. But I don't think it adds, I don't think it adds to your teaching very much. Um, 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 I think the teaching really improves by teaching the lower level stuff. Yes, I agree with that too. You really have to know it well. Yes. <laughs> and you have to be able to say it clearly. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So today we are going to talk about truth. And um, I'm very pleased again to pull out this uh, classic, um, which we do <laughs> dialogues on. But actually, we didn't really. Um, oh, yeah. You've got it. Wait, is that a paperback? Yeah, there is a paperback. Well, I got the hardcover, so you know, you know where yeah. your dinner came from. Yeah, um, exactly. Appreciate it, uh, man. Um, you know, we did a two two 
a two dialogue uh, coverage of this book, but we did not talk about the chapter on truth. Uh, we talked a lot about epistemology. We talked a lot about ontology. We didn't talk a lot about truth. Um, and um, w- this is one of the areas where you and I, I think, have sub- pretty substantially different views. And so I'm looking forward to this. I reread yeah. the chapter on truth um, uh, for the, the conversation. Um, so the first thing um, I want to do is I want to sort of just – could you give a brief sketch – um, not of your view or of the book, but just a brief sketch of what is at issue when analytic philosophers talk about truth. What, what, what are some of the, let's say, you know, bullet issues that uh, reflect the concerns of analytic philosophers with respect to the question of truth that then we'll talk about what your view on them is? Okay. Uh, I mean, I guess one way into that is the concept of truth bearers and truth makers. Uh, so, you know, so the sky is blue on a sunny day, whatever that is that I just said is a truth bearer in the sense that it's the sort of thing that could be true or false, or it's a truth value bearer. Um, so is that a statement, the sentence, whatever the proposition, right? The utterance, right? And it it matters. It's going to matter which of these you say is the truth. Yes. Yeah. 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 When I say the sky is blue on a sunny day, there's a big, big controversy over what I've just done. Have I like formulated a proposition? Have I uttered a sentence? Like, how should we primarily think about, uh, you know, what is the what is the thing? What is the object that is true or false? Right. Very good. You know, what sorts of objects can be true or false? Uh, and then I guess, and then look, you know. Uh, this is a more sort of contemporary or last 20 years vein, this idea of truth makers. I guess it probably is an old idea, but uh, has, I guess, gotten more prevalent in the literature. So what is it that makes the skies blue on a sunny day true? Or, false, uh, or whatever false. the hell. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, maybe. So some of the candidates are the world, reality, the facts, the facts. Fa- the facts. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, there's a whole bunch of candidates. Um, yes, exactly. The for, sky for truth truth makers. Yes, 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 yes. The sky itself, or uh, you know, um, yes. Yeah, so the, I guess the ontological status, or the you know various kinds of status of both of these ends of the truth transaction, uh, you know, are kind of hard to make concrete, or or like just to say specifically what they are exactly. Yeah. But I mean, at least that gives you kind of a decent way to formulate some of the traditional uh, theories of truth. Yeah, you right. Know. So then you'll get your you'll get your correspondence theories, which say, in other words, the theories are all the theories presuppose a, 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 a conception of the truth bearer and the truth maker, and then purport to describe the relationship between the truth bearer and the truth maker. Am I correct? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so we could try to say, like, what is it that makes this true or false, like in virtue of what property or relation to what is the true fact bearer, true when true, false when false. Right. So, so a a standard, a standard uh, uh, correspondence theorist, as they're called, is going to say that the relation is some sort of conformity or correspondence between the truth bearer and the truth maker. Right. Um, A coherence theorist 
is good. Now, this is sort of, uh, this is where it gets kind of tricky because a coherence theorist, it seems to me, doesn't need to have a conception of the truth maker in this, in the same sense. What it says is that what makes a statement true is how well it coheres with other statements that we already consider to be true. Am I correct? Right. So those other statements, I guess, could be construed as, uh, truth makers. But in that case, it would be like a whole system of belief or, you know, web of knowledge or something like that. Right, right. So, like, in in going and looking for truth makers, you wouldn't go outside of the head of the person who's uttering the truth bearer, let's say, or something like that. Right. Uh, Yeah, that that language doesn't naturally go with a coherence theory, I suppose. Right. And each theory, I mean, these are the two main theories. Um, um, You have yet a different view and then there's a kind of an anti-theoretical view, um, which is actually the view that I hold a version of, and there are multiple versions of it. But, just, but uh, correspondence and coherence are the most standard theories. And each one kind of has a distinctive weakness that the other doesn't share, right? So the, the, problem, with yes. the, corresp- the problem with the correspondence theory is to try to come up with some account of this truth maker, which is notoriously difficult and which um, uh, we'll talk about. And the problem with coherence is... Um, to come up with some notion of... Go ahead. It's not only the concept of the truth maker, it's the relation of correspondence itself is also a deep puzzle, you know, right. and very hard right. to right. You know, right. make plausible. Right, right. right. I mean, that's a good part of what Wittgenstein tries to do in the Tractatus, right? Yes. To try and get, is to try and, and, and to give a, 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 a clear and, and specific account of the relation and, Isomorphism, let's say. Yeah, and as one, as we know, or at least those of us who know, who are in the know of this, know, um, even with his uh, ridiculous ability, um, <laughs> um, it's not clear that it works, right? I mean, um, right? I think he gave up on it, right? Yeah, yeah, and, mean, and yeah, and the problem with coherence is, it's not at all clear how truth in any way connects up to the world. In other words, a complete fiction. Can have a, a complete fiction's statements can be coherent, right? With one, yes. coherent with one another, and so it's going to become very hard to sort of give any sort of principle, any sort of principle distinction between uh, complete fictions and, let's say, science, right? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and so, um, like, for example, I'm reading a fantasy series, series of fantasy novels right now. It's about three thousand pages so far, and uh, okay, and it's uh, it's kind of a, a pretty, I'm trying to remember the title. Brandon Sanderson is the author. There's a lot of world building. Okay. So like he makes this kind of coherent reality and he gives it a history. He gives it languages. He gives it religions. All right. Now I haven't noticed any deep incoherence in it. It's a pretty consistent, like set of physical laws, uh, you know, environmental conditions, different sorts of creatures and things like this. So why on a coherence theory isn't that, true or as true as a scientific theory right. about the world for example right. yeah right right and so and so each each of these theories has its own distinctive problems um and the problems are so are such problems that a gr- a, 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 a number of philosophers have become sort of anti-theorists um and these people are broadly speaking referred to as deflationists um of which there are a number of varieties, but essentially what they all suggest is that uh, truth is actually not a substantial property. Um, um, that to yeah. say that a statement is true is simply equivalent to utter- making the statement, right? Right, precisely. Uh, 
Um, it's true that the sky is blue on a sunny day means the same, according to, say, uh, Ramsey, yeah. as the sky is blue on a sunny day. Right. So just ditch the it is true that. Yeah. And I, I incline towards this sort of uh, view. Um, and I think a nice way to segue now into your view and into the book, which is what I want to spend the bulk of the time on, is for me to, me to explain why I'm a def- why I've become a deflationist. Because okay. my reason is the same reason why you're not one. <laughs> and so I, I'm, really, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this. So um, traditionally, or, or commonly, people come to deflationism because they weary of the effort to make some sense of coherence or correspondence theories. But and, and I don't want to say that that's not any part of the reason why I've moved towards deflationism, but I have an additional reason, and that is because I'm, I'm so indebted to the, uh, to Wittgenstein, the later Wittgenstein and the ordinary language tradition, I'm always interested in seeing how a word is actually used before I, Me too, man. before I start giving an account. And I know that at least Austin is very much an influence for you. I know that you're much more ambivalent about Wittgenstein than I am. Sure. Um, I like but, that bit though. But so I made a sort of little catalog of varying uses of the word true. Um, and so let me just, I'm just going to read them because it's not very many. Sure. Um, so in addition to the standard true and false, which we normally apply to statements or sentences or utterances or whatever you want to apply them to, here are some other uses, right, um, of the word true. So uh, what he said is nothing more than a truism, which means that it's trivial and uninteresting. Okay. Um, she remained true to me through good times and bad, meaning faithful. Yes. His arrow flew straight and true, which means without deviation. Um, now here's slang. This is slang. That shit is the motherfucking truth, meaning yeah. the be- meaning it's the best. <laughs> yeah. um, this is my grandmother's tried and true method of getting rid of red wine stains, which means it's effective. Yeah. Now, what I what what, what this <laughs> makes me think when I when I notice when I see something like this. What it makes me think is that there can't be one account. Right. Right. That there, you know, in other words, that truth is a family resemblance concept, as Wittgenstein would say. There may be family resemblances between its varying uses, but you're not going to have a theory of truth. It's, it, and it's pointless to sort of go looking for one. The reason I say this is that you and your book even go into a more painstaking analysis of the varying uses of the word true. Yes. And yet you conclude that you can get a theory of truth out of it. And so that's why – this is where I want you to now start talking about your view, and I'm going to move back to being a, uh, a questioner. Okay. How come you came to the opposite conclusion of me in looking at these myriad uses of the word true? Right. Okay, so let me just say, like, the first distinction I draw is among uses of the word truth is that some uses of the word seem to apply to what we might call semantic entities or like objects that are things that have a meaning. So sentences, propositions, but also maybe pictures, for example. Um, that, that's a semantic and a uh, picture is a semantic entity. In anything, the sense that, that, anything that has reference. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Anything that refers or represent, represents something outside itself. Um, so, you know, when you say a sentence is true, a particular sentence is true, or a particular picture is a true depiction, that sort of thing, you're talking about semantic entities. 
And that's where, for example, the question of correspondence opens up. So, you know, for the correspondence theory to be true, true truth bearers have to be exclusively semantic, right? Because if it's not a semantic en- entity that refers to something outside itself, you can't get a correspondence relation going. Right. Uh, right. So, like, but right. most of the uses that you just gave use true to refer to something that is not a semantic entity. Yeah, all those uses that I gave are yeah. non-semantic uses in your, right. in your parlance, yeah. Right, like true love. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so, all right. So the first question is whether we could give a univocal theory of truth that would cover both semantic and non-semantic entities and that are uses. And, you know, I see why the first uh, response would be not at all. I mean, these seem to be like obviously different senses. For one thing, you can't possibly theorize true love, the use of true and true love in terms of correspondence, coherence, I don't think, you know, because they're not the right kind of entities. And usually philosophers just say they never even really usually mention the other cases at all. But if they do, they just say, well, of course, I'm concerned with the, you know, the basic propositional case, which is the fundamental case. Now, I mean, I guess I'm not necessarily saying that there has to be one theory of truth to cover all these cases, although I'm trying for one in a way. Um, but I just start by asking the question whether these are different concepts. Okay, like whether true love or true aim or true, uh, let's see, what are my examples here? Um, you know, or true man. All right, how closely is that, or how, how closely should we think of that, or use, uses like that as being related to the propositional case or, you know, the, the semantic cases? And I guess, like, my initial response is, I don't, these uses of the term emerge from a single etymology. They're very, very closely related. All right. I I hear them resonating on the same wavelength. And what I, you know, so what I think they have in common. Let me me just interrupt you one thing. So do do you think that, Beyond the point of mere a mere family resemblance account, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I, I don't. I, I don't have no. I don't want to sort of force you into accepting right. a strict technical literal definition. But what I'm asking you is, I mean, a family resemblance account is the loosest, right? Right. Um. And my what I'm asking you is, do you think that there is a commonality amongst all the uses that is stronger? Yes. Typically reflected in a family resemblance account. I think so. Okay, please, now continue. Yeah. Right, right. But there could be satellite uses and satellite meetings as well. Uh, but, yeah, I hear basically, you know, all these uses of the word true, or many of them, as configuring around basically just the idea of what's real. Okay, like to say of, uh, I mean, it wouldn't be insane to say the sky is blue on a sunny day is true because the circumstance described is real. All right, the blueness of the sky is real. Yeah. The love in true love is real. All right, things like that. Like, I don't know that I go for some kind of rigorous 
attempt to theorize all these univocally, univocally, but um, I think they very closely cluster around this idea of reality in various respects. So to say that you're a true, you know, X is a true man, for example, which is an ancient usage. Um, you know, I mean, it has all this stuff about virtue, honesty, and stuff like that. Yeah. It, but it's it's very closely related to some. Like we would, we would, if we said that someone was, you know, really there, really present or something like that, you know, you'd be very close to this sense. So like what, I guess the point is like, okay, it could be a scattered family resemblance term. Now let's also ask the question, can we say something interesting about what those bits of the family have in common? Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I would look, I would, I feel like we're negotiating. Um, I would, ex- I would accept if what you're, if what you're essentially doing is saying, look, I think that there are certain dominant mo- nodes of, res- of the resemblance basis base, right? Yes. I would probably accept that. My, my, the problem with going stronger than that, it seems to me is that, in, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds of a sort of an Austinian analysis, but, um, some of the uses that I indicated, I don't see how you connect those specifically with reality. So, for example, yeah, the word when when we use the word truism, we're actually in a sense making saying something negative. Yeah. We're saying that actually it's not apt, right? Um, right, sure. It's trivial and uninteresting. Um, um, and so that's a use of it that actually has a negative connotation. And right. the other one is that the grandmother's tried and true method of getting rid of wine stains. <laughs> I mean, that, that means effective. Or, you know, well, it's, it's, it's the real way to get rid of the wine stain. I mean, it's a non-fictional way. Is that a reasonable paraphrase of effective, of, uh, reconceptualization of effectiveness, do you think? I mean, it really Th- gets th- things things are effective that are placebos. Right, it, it really gets rid of the wine stain. In reality, it removes. Okay, the- I, I'm not right. Like, like I said, I don't yeah. want to get in the weeds. But you yeah. see my, you see what the issue I'm raising, right? Yes. Um, I don't. I don't think I can do much of anything with truism actually along these lines. Uh, I'd have to probably think about that. And there, there might be a, lot, a number of other outliers, or. But then again, what, what, why is something an outlier? And because we, there's a do, because there's a dominant set of of yeah no so it, I I accept you're not trying to give you're certainly not giving a definition and well I I, I do though I mean but it, I don't it depends on how I I'm not sure how seriously I mean it in a way so right, my, you're not my, giving a definition in the old fashioned sense of necessary and sufficient conditions um, that that are independent of sort of you're you're, you're uh, identifying a dominant a dominant set of resemblances is what you're well, saying. Okay. So my, my, uh, my definitions insofar as I say one is what is, is true. What is not is false. Okay. So like it's, it's supposed to be constructed parallel to Aristotle, right? Who says that to say of what is that it is, is true. And to say, you know, and to say of what is that it is not is false. At, you know, and it goes on from there, a couple more lines. Um, so one thing I, when I shift off of to say, uh, you know, to speak the truth and go to the truth, you know, <laughs> what is, is true is also to move off of the exclusive semantic bearers. 
Right. Now, and that's, that's, is, that's what I don't quite understand is that in Aristotle's formulation, the one you just gave, the truth bearer is clearly semantic. Yes. And look, it's an, it's what he's doing is giving a version of the, of the correspondence theory. Okay. Yes. Um, now you don't. You are not giving a version of the correspondence theory. You're, you're giving what you call an identity theory. Um, and what it's I don't a version of what's known as the identity theory, maybe. Yeah. What I don't understand is then, does that mean that you're abandoning the idea that truth is a relation? Yes. But <laughs> that, took a, that was a long. Time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but see, then I want to. Yes, because truth can be. A you know true love. Well, maybe that is a relation, isn't it? Uh, true, uh, true colors or whatever. Uh, I I'm I'm trying to encompass the uses that don't seem to refer to a relation. Um, but then I need to pull off of that to account for the semantic cases. Like I st- I that's still going to leave open. It doesn't answer the main traditional question, which is. What is it that makes a semantic truth bearer, a sentence, true? And one problem with the formulation is that if I say what is, is true. And then actually my, my feeling of the semantic truth bearers, my view of the semantic truth bearers is that they have to be specific utterances and inscriptions. Yeah. Well, by right. which I have another question, but we, we'll get yeah. that. Okay. So but say what is, is true, that would count every utterance as true that actually occurs, right? Like in other words, uh, because each such utterance is, so it's true. Yeah. Uh, on my view. So then I need to pull off and try, and I do this fairly elaborately, you know, try to give a, uh, a kind of specialized account of the semantic cases, right. But that, that preserves the fundamental in like the, the truth and fact and reality are sort of all the same notions. Right, right, right. What, what, this is one of the things I think is really fascinating about it and why I think it's, you know, like the whole book, it's just fucking original, all right, which is, Thanks, which is so fucking refreshing, um, um, given that everything is so recycled. Um, I feel the same. Um, but for you, the semantic conception of truth is not the primary one. True, that's right. The primary conception of truth um, is the non-semantic one that then the semantic you have to give an account of the semantic in turn. So in other words, you're yes. inverting. You're inverting. Um, yes. The, the, you in a sense are the exact opposite of a deflationist, right? So a deflationist says, right, to say that snow is the statement snow is white is true is equivalent to saying snow is white, and what you're saying is snow is white is true right is the fact is itself the truth right right Um, and the semantic is in terms of it right yes exactly um which it's hard to even express um (laughs) yes um, um and so maybe then so then let me ask you this then um truth is then not a property of fundamentally of of linguistic in other words what's does does the theory of truth then become a part of metaphysics yes i think that's fair and and of course that's going to make many analytic philosophers or anyone that's that was attracted to the deflationist program very uncomfortable that's exactly what they were trying to avoid like a whole bunch of metaphysical commitments yeah necessary to keep you know keep using the concept 
Yeah, so, yeah. So let me I mean, ask you. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Well, one thing, I, you know, look, it's true that snow is white means the same as snow is white. Right. It's also the case that snow is white means the same as it's true that snow is white. In other words, you know, you can deflate it by saying you can get rid of it. But actually, maybe you haven't gotten rid of it. I mean, the, the thing is, it's everywhere all the time. In other words, you've shown that you don't need to say it, but you haven't shown that you don't need to think it or that you're not asserting it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so to me, the deflationist program, I run it the other way. Yeah, that's what it seemed like to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, a sense, in a sense, the deflationist program wants to do philosophy language without metaphysics. Yes. You want to do metaphysics without philosophy language, it seems to me. Well put, exactly. Um, yes. um, the, the question is, um, maybe in the maybe in the second edition, you can give me a little uh, you can give me a little uh, a little back rub. Um, but that, but but let me ask you though. I mean, and maybe this is just simply the fact that it's such an entrenched idea that the semantic is primary. It just sounds awfully strange to say that reality is true. It does. Well, yeah, yeah and the, because is and that's what I said. Maybe this is just a relic of of the of the overemphasis of the semantic use. But but um, the I don't know. What it, I don't know what it means to say that the sun is true, right? The sun, right, is, the sun is a ball of gas, right? Yes. What does it mean to say the sun is true? Well, it means to say it's real. But yeah, it, right. It, yeah, but it, but that doesn't sound right, though. Right, like, it sounds linguistically deviant. I mean, it sounds semantically deviant to speak that way. Now, that of course is not necessarily an indication of anything. But do you think that that really just is a function of the overemphasis of the semantic use, or do you think that it does reflect a, a difficulty that you're going to have in cashing the idea out? Well, I think in many in many circumstances, you can easily paraphrase a statement about truth as a statement about reality, and vice versa. But there are some cases where you can't do that, and, and you know, or it's not natural to do it. To say of a single object like the sun that it is true is it's a puzzling locution. It's not a natural locution. Um, but to but say to that say, the sun is real, to say that the sun is real, is yes. not a puzzling locution. And so the question then is, I use the word so 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 I use the word real both both ways, right? I can say that the sun is hot is true that the sun yes. is hot. It's the sun is really hot, right? It really yes. is the case that the sun is hot. I you just said the same thing twice, right? Right. And I can also say that the sun is real. And I mean yes. real in the same way, right? And the heat of the sun is real. Right. I mean real. But why can't I then say if real and true mean the sort of same thing, why can't right. I say, why can't I say that the sun is true without it sounding so odd? Right. And I, I guess I'm going to squirrel out of this a little bit. Like, I think that in ordinary language, there often are these, you know, this is one reason why we have many words that are near, that are proximate synonyms. Uh, there are cases where you definitely can't swap true and real. There are many cases where you can. Yeah. I feel like this, the basic notion is the same notion, but it's true that a competent English user would not say, except in some bizarre circumstances, the sun is true. Uh, they is might that say, just a peculiarity of, is that just a, due to peculiarities of grammar or is that something more deep along the lines of, well, they're not really synonyms, real and true, real and true. 
Well, they're not perfect synonyms, and that shows that, I think. Uh, but they're very close, the conceptually. Yeah. That's, and, and I guess I'm going to be satisfied with that. No, I'm satisfied with that, too. I'm, listen, I'm not a Fragian. I don't have to have these sort of perfect um, uh, senses matching so you can substitute right. them into context. No, I'm satisfied with that also. I just want to be clear on it. Um, um, I um, see the problem, though. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. Let me ask you, why don't you have the same problem as the correspondence theory? It's in the following sense. All right. So here's all right. one major problem with the correspondence theory. Um, and that is, uh, uh, ultimately, you could argue uh, it's circular or question begging, right? Because you say, whatever you make is the truth maker. It's very hard to see how you could fully uh, express it without using the word expression, without using the concept of truth, right? So it's very difficult to see how you could cash out the notion of corresponding to reality, corresponding to the facts. Any effort to sort of really give a, a thorough account of the fact or reality is going to either tacitly or explicitly employ the concept of truth. And so part of the problem with the correspondence theory is there's no question-begging, non-question-begging way to make sense of the idea of the facts or reality. Why, in a sense, don't you have the same problem? Okay. <laughs> One thing, I mean, I'm sympathetic to some of the stuff you said in the sense that I think you, you're again saying that truth and reality and fact are very, very closely connected. Right, like if I think they are the very same notion in some sense, mm, and, I, you know, I mean, no wonder it's circular, right? Yeah, uh, it's not. A, it's not a vicious circularity because you're not saying that well, one, you're not offering. Uh, well, they kind of is. Right, but maybe it is though, right? <laughs> just, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing. I'm just saying the same thing again, and that's not. All right. Well, all right. Let me, in in terms of relation to the correspondence theory. Let me try to just say a little bit about what I actually think the truth bearer is in the yeah, semantics. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, because I, I'm not – so first of all, I think you have to start with the utterance or inscription rather than with an abstract object like a sentence or a proposition. I've got, like, a lot of arguments for that. Uh, one of them would just be sarcasm. So in other words, like, a, a, a tone of voice is sufficient to reverse the meaning of a sentence to its negation, okay? So that what that would indicate is that you can't evaluate the sentence or the proposition for truth at all. You have to know what kind of tone of voice it's offered in, and you actually have to be acquainted with the conventions of sarcasm and so on. Um, so can, can, I, can I ask you, just before you move on, and part of this is because I want the audience to understand what some of the standard sort of way this conversation goes. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why, and I think it's a strong reason why people have, have argued that you should apply truth to propositions rather than to state sentences or utterance tokens is because if you apply the concept of truth to sentences or utterance tokens is, then you also have to bring on board some account of translation. And, um, that is a notorious, notoriously fucked up. <laughs> I mean, um, you or know, just even synonymy, right? Yeah, just Quine and Davidson by themselves yeah. are enough to make you worry. Um, and it's worth noting that both Quine and Davidson are sentent, you know, are, are, you know, it's almost like they, they see the whole area as kind of radioactive. Um, yes. Um, and so. So, so are you confident enough that you can give an account of translation such that it, there's no reason to 
Because I agree with you as to the positive reasons for attaching truth to utterance tokens yeah. or to sentences as opposed to, but um, I don't know that I'm confident that I could, that I have an account of translation that's going to. Yeah, I might have to write a check on that too, because I haven't really tried to work this idea through all those arguments. So I mean, if it applies to an utterance, to a sentence as opposed to a proposition, then it's going to be, quote, snow is white, unquote, is true in English. Right. If and only if snow is white. Um, um, it, whereas if it applies to the population, you don't need the true in L because the set, the French sentence, the German sentence express the same proposition. Right. Right. Um, so what I want, I'm just curious, do you, do you even have a working idea of, of what you're going to say about translation or do you just bracket the whole thing and say, here are the reasons for applying it to utterances. And I'm going to leave all that stuff over there. Um, um, well, no, I mean, I probably have something to say. I mean, um, all right. So I, I, maybe I need the, objection precise before you know I, I really should work through the quine stuff but um so look snow is white you can't evaluate for that for truth at all right okay? because that's yeah that's you why you know whether it's meant sarcastically yeah you know yeah. snow is white is right. true only if snow is white is false Right, like if you're standing in the middle of Manhattan, yeah. <laughs> looking yeah. at a pile of black snow, and you go, "Hey, look, snow is white," right? I mean, right. clearly you're meaning that it isn't, right? Um, right. So, what are we going to translate? Right, right. You know, so in other words, we got we have to translate what is meant in some right. sense, right? And I think that to do so, so the translation project is going to be incredibly elaborate. Yeah, it's you actually going to go beyond it. by utterance. It's going to go yeah. beyond the quine. It's going to have to include Gricean implicature. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's probably indeterminate, you know, I mean, ultimately or something like that. Like you, you can't really solve that probably. Um, or at least I've never figured out how to. Uh, but I think like in principle, the problems aren't totally different, I suppose. I mean, I, I really have to think about that though. Like I have, I have not. No, I just noticed that not, you didn't say anything about it in the book. Yeah. And I wondered whether, I, it's, I wonder whether it's cause you just sort of bracketed that bracketed that as, as, I, a, as, as a mountain, you got to climb separately. Sort of. <laughs> um, um, I didn't maybe fully cognize it as a problem, but now I am. Yeah. Uh, but I need to, I, I need to really work yeah, on yeah, it. No, I did not right. mean to put you on the spot. It was just right, that, yeah. And this okay, so, reflects the way you're educated, but the way I was taught this was, yes. yeah, there's all these reasons to apply it to utterances. The problem is, is that the reason why people have also said we should apply to proposition is that then you skip right. the whole problem of translation. Sure. Um, um, so anyway, go keep yes. going. Yeah. <laughs> so all right. About the relation and why it's not question begging or circular, viciously circular to simply identify the true as the real. Right. Um, okay. So, my considered position on what a truth bearer is in the semantic case, and like this is really going to take us to a different uh, kind of framework, but um, is that it's not, in fact, it's not the utterance in isolation, and it's certainly not the sentence or the proposition, whatever exactly those things are. Uh, it is the situation embedding the speaker and the facts say that's referred to and the environment between them that makes like an interchange between them possible and a set of linguistic conventions, social conventions uh, that's partly in the head of the utterer 
but it's like a social fact spread across the population, you know? Um, so that I'm, I'm sort of going to move. Yeah. And this is a metaphysical move, right? Like I'm moving off of anything linguistic, anything exclusively linguistic. I'm moving. So what's true is my whole situation. And like, for example, um, I think that part of what's involved is a ethical uh, situation of the speaker or the believer. And maybe that's marked in the uses of true as keeping faith, right? Or so that, you know, I think what's true is like a very elaborate ethico, metaphysico, aesthetic, epistemic situation or something like that. Yeah. You know, I'm realizing now that actually this, the, the whole conversation is a little bit unfair in the following sense. And that is, um, I don't know that, 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 that any of the views in the book are done justice when they're pulled out of the system. Um, because now what you're starting to say sounds a lot to me like what you talk about in the ontology with objects being knots, right? Exactly. So, um, in other words, it's such a weird way of thinking if you pull it out. <laughs> when, you put it all, when you put them all yeah. together, so in, other, in other words, what I was thinking as you were just describing, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're going too fast. It sounds to me like all I need to do is say the truth applies to utterance tokens, right? And thus, truth is more a notion that you belongs ling- in linguistics to pragmatics than it does to semantics, right? Okay. Um, 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 but then you go further and say, no, the true, what's true is the whole situation. It's not just the utterance token. It's, and that then says, I'm saying, what the hell is that supposed to mean? I don't even understand. <laughs> yeah, I but then when I started thinking about the ontology, I'm like, oh, of course, this is a system. Yes. So true. his, his metaphysics is equally off the, ra- off the ranch, right? <laughs> it's like he's arguing almost for a kind of spinozistic. It's Everything true. is just this fabric, right? And then, and then the, the in, we individuate by these permutations in the fabric. Exactly. And, um, and also, I want and, and a key a key moment of that is that I want us in these situations fully. Okay, I you know, in other words, I don't want to distinguish us or our syntax or our language from the order of physical reality at all. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, yeah. That, that, yeah. Now that's going to eliminate most of the traditional theories of truth, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so a lot of these things, it seems to me, depend on a picture of human beings and human intellection and human belief and human representation that in principle separates it from the world. Yeah. And then no wonder a gulf opens up, right? You're yeah. sitting there going like, how can my syntax possibly reach out to the world? But then, you know, Underneath this, you it doesn't are. have to reach out to the world because it is yeah. the world. That's right, the world, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. in that sense, um, and the um, world is coming at you right through your eyes and stuff like that, man. Yeah. Or right, you know, it's in your, it is your body among yeah. other things, and it gives know. a whole new meaning to "we are the world," right? I mean, it's yeah, just, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but you know, it, it, this it's so this is so damn interesting. Um, but it also makes me realize something I was asking you in the very first dialogue we did in the book. And that is why a system, right? And 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 I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is, my I almost agree. And since it's funny, I keep marveling at how much I agree with all the bits and pieces, <laughs> and then but to find myself in the opposite position. And that I wonder if it solely comes down to 
your desire for a system. In other words, this whole picture of everything being one fabric and everything, you know, individuation being knots in the fabric and all that is really fucking strange, right? No. And the way, wait, wait, no. wait. The way I would handle it is simply by ex- accepting multiple fragmentary accounts, right? In other words, rather than it's yeah. just, you only have to get a kind of a weird or off the map picture if you <laughs> insist on a system, right? Um, in other words, I, I wonder if the weirdness is, is a result of, of, of the insistence on being systematic as well, opposed to handling case, all these problems piecemeal yeah. and not insisting upon. Right. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I guess I think that this approach yields a better conception of truth, but you might not feel that way. You know what I mean? Oh, but yeah, it, I understand. It, I mean, it, you know, it does recapitulate the ontology, which gets recapitulated in every chapter in yeah. one way or another. Yeah. But from in my head, that's because it sheds light on all these different areas. But this is exactly the danger of system making, right? Like you start to see your own idea everywhere, man, and right. and you don't see anything else. Right. And, and the objections kind of dissipate, you know, right. as you concentrate on this coherent thing you're making. Yeah. And I think like to avoid that danger, and maybe it's just like an expression of humility or an quest of knowledge, this idea like let's proceed piecemeal. We don't need an overarching that's my inclination. That's yeah. my inclination always. I, yeah. Um, and I, you know, yes, I can't help it. Yeah. I think it's because of your, your, your deep loves. I mean, you have these sort of, you know, you talked about Kierkegaard, you talked about, right. I mean, you know, there's sort of things that, you know, that go very deep into you that I think are almost temperamental. Um, um, yeah. and, um, um, and I, and I'm not saying this to suggest that, um, that that in any way, renders doubtful the, the the quality or usefulness of the system um, um, or, well, or what you do. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you think are the advantages to, um, um, to, 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 to sort of trying to give an account of truth rather than say, okay, there's semantical truth over there. We're going to deal with it in this very minimalistic way. And then there are these other uses of truth that don't apply to semantic right. objects. We're going to deal with them as a sort of system of family resemblances and we're done. Goodbye. Uh, uh, I'm going to go have lunch. That's my inclination. Maybe it's just because yeah. I'm lazy. Maybe it's because I'm shallow. What do you see? As the, <laughs> what do you see as the advantage of not of not taking that way? What are you well, getting? What are you getting that I'm not yeah. getting out of out of what you're doing? Right. Well, I guess like you. Okay. You don't want to over theorize. You don't want to force things into a system. You do want to see to what extent you can make these things hang together. So like if you were to proceed piecemeal, uh, you know, I think you could probably do everything you really need to do uh, for most purposes and just leaving it piecemeal. And actually it would end up being truer. It would end up being more accurate overall, just like the pieces. But I think that then you might wonder, okay, like how far could we go to bring these together into some kind of coherent framework? And I think that's a worthwhile question. It's not the only question. It is, you know, it, it's a kind of obsessional question with me, which is, I guess, why I like end up running a, a system. I would really like to release, I, I want to, I don't want to make very, very strong coherence claims or, like too much 
you know, just be too prideful of how much you can account for for one of these theories or what they're doing. So the overall ontological framework, I want to say, like, its basic status is an attempt to see how much of this we could fit into an overall coherent framework. I really see the danger, though, of losing the data, you know what I mean? Or just, like, because I think systematic philosophy did that terribly, right? Like, if you're Hegel or Schelling or Fichte, Schopenhauer, you just went on with your idea and covered everything with it and lost the, lost the material you were trying to account for, it seems to me. And I am worried that that's happening here, you know? Um, it seems to me like, look, and I was actually thinking, it's, it's funny, I mean, I think you and I have a sort of a weird uh, connection. Um, I was thinking as you started talking, what he's doing is really more like continental philosophy, actually. You know, in a sense, because my inclination is always to ask you, okay, what problems are you solving with this? Right. right? Uh, that can't be solved by the piecemeal approach. And your answer is, I'm not trying to solve problems. You even admitted, in a sense, the piecemeal approach probably gets things more accurate in terms of the problems. But that you think that there is a value to looking going a lot deeper and trying to see if there are, are sort of subterranean relations that yes. will then give you a very atypical, not normal picture of the overall, right? And then, and then the I, think it's, I think it's common sense, man. My own picture. I think it's like, it's well, but I mean, listen, the common sense view of the world, the common sense view of the world is that, that, that things are discrete and individual relative to one another. And yeah. that the, that many of their relations are indeed abstract, right? I mean, they're not. They're not. You know, my, my, relation, my relation to you as a buddy <laughs> is not like my relation to you is being tied together with a rope, right? I mean, yeah. in, other, in other in other words, I I'm not, <laughs> I'm not disparaging. What I'm getting at is it is that, like being tied together with a rope. What I'm getting is that when you go that deep, because the relations are are in a sense much, much more fundamental and removed from the level of appearances, right? Um, you get a picture that sort of at least strikes as being weird, right? I mean, certainly Spinoza on its face is weird, yes. right? Yeah. Um, now, you could argue fundamentally it isn't, but that, I'm not denying right. that. And, right, and right, right. I'm guessing, I'm, <laughs> what I'm wondering is, okay, if you're not trying to solve problems in the analytic sense, what are you trying to do? Right. And it sounds to me like it's more just like the pursuit of pure understanding in, 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 in the Greek sense or something more like what the continental philosophers are trying to do, right? Um, 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 yeah. Like some of the people you mentioned, <laughs> where the yeah. reward is great, but the risk is also great. Right? <laughs> I <mean. laughs> no, I, that's right. And in a way, like I really respect the modesty of analytic philosophy, and I also understand the philosophical reasons for it. So... Because I think the worst mistakes in the history of philosophy came from this kind of overweening, I'm going to explain the universe to you now as a whole. Um, so like the pretensions of philosophy and, and its inability to pay off on those pretensions, you know, by the time you get to Moore and Russell around 1900 or whatever, they're just going like, what, what are you talking about? Like, let's, let's tackle something we can tackle because this is just ridiculous. I don't even know if I could evaluate this for truth. Uh, and who cares anyway? All right, so let's see what we can actually do with some logical tools or something to clarify something specific. But, I, man, I got into philosophy because I was trying to, like, I couldn't stop thinking about 
what this whole reality is and what I'm doing in it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, I feel like, and then I got my analytic training or whatever. I released those questions in a way, like in my work, like I, I stopped uh, talking about them maybe, but I didn't stop thinking about them. And then I, and then I was like trying to see, okay, like, are any of the, would any of these tools be of use in that project? Or if we took on board some of the modesty of the analytic project in the face of German idealism, could we reconstruct, I mean, how, how could we still pursue the project of like the nature of this whole thing and us in it Yeah, in a way that didn't have that kind of incredible arrogance and inco- in, 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 incomprehensibility finally, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure if I, you know, like that's, let's just say that tension just lurks within me all the time. Like I'm drawing these giant conclusions. How could they possibly be justified? And what good are they going to do anyone? Although I'm not sure they won't, I guess, but you know. uh, Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's really fitting that Richard Rorty was your advisor. I mean, Richard, what what you've just described is in a sense what Richard Rorty tried to do. He tried to bring analytic clarity and modesty to what he saw as continental philosophy's more interesting and important questions, right? Yes. Um, 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 and uh, you're I've been reading continental this whole time too. Though. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think if I think actually if you'd been trained in a continental program, if you'd been trained in France, this would not be as 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 no. You know what I mean? This this is yeah. this is hard, but it's readable. And it, and it, and it's, and it, you know what I mean? It's not like reading Hegel. It's not like reading Fichte. It's not like reading Heidegger. That's for sure. Derrida, yeah. Right. Um, it, it aims at clarity and it does, I will say it does, it exudes modesty. You never overstate. You always sort of, ha- you, you, you reach wide, but you, but you express hesitation. Um, um, it seems to me. You never seem, like you never seem sort of, you know, right. like, like, um, and I mean, you know, I just, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The, like the, what I was trying to avoid is what you get in the preface of, uh, of phenomenology of the spirit or <laughs> the critique of pure reason where they say like, okay, here's the final answer to all questions, man. Like, aren't you glad you'll be, the human race will be grateful forevermore for this. Right, right. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And then, you know, and then of course it's refuted 20 times or it, you know, it, 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 it you know, although they had good runs, they, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, and if, and I'm trying not to go insane. Okay. Like if you are a person who thinks they figured out the entire nature of the universe or whatever, like that sounds crazy, even in the philosophy department. Right. Yeah. So I, I need to pull back on some of I don't want to become a monster. Right. <laughs> you know, like, right. Yeah. Or become sort of self, self-deceiving, right? I mean, yes. I mean, I mean, exactly. I mean, that, that's always sort of, you know, the worst thing that a philosopher can do is become self-deceiving. And, you know, it's funny that you and I just behind the scenes, I just had a piece come out in philosophy now. And one of the things I do, do, I actually say at the end, towards the end is that I lament the fact that you really can't do systems anymore, even though I'm not a systems guy. <laughs> but, you know, in other words, I think yeah. system, systems done with the right attitude about them are really what is exciting in philosophy, right? I mean, I mean, um, um, of course it's a little ridiculous. Of course the yes. idea of, of a theory of everything is ridiculous. It's quick side. Yes. That's also what's compelling about it. 
And, yeah, and um, um, yeah, I read that piece and I really liked it a lot. And, you know, one thing is like, just the, I, I think, how about some courage? You know what I mean? Like, just like, let's take a shot at it. Why not? If we want to. Okay, so like, if you want to pursue more modest projects or whatever, like, absolutely, man. Clarify this area, that area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But if someone's just in the mood, like, why is that verboten? Yeah. And I mean, the whole, like, the whole idea of analytic philosophy, I think, is, as you said in this piece, right? It's like, it's trying to bring philosophy in line with science or use science as an analogy for the kind of knowledge that philosophy might use or use philosophy as a handmaiden to science. Um, but, and, and so was, I, and I see why they did that because a lot of 19th century, like German idealism is discreditable. It's discrediting in a way. It's kind of an overreaction is what it is. Yeah. Right? I mean, yes. And, and so like a lot of the fun, interesting possibilities of philosophy, a lot of the profound possibilities of philosophy were eliminated a priori. Like you just can't possibly undertake that project. That's been, and I, but my reaction is like, I can undertake it if I feel like it. And then let's see what comes out. Yeah. You know, but no one, very few people are working that way. And I just wish like there was more welcome for like just sort of creativity or like, here's my crazy project. Let's give it a yeah, shot. Here's, here's my gigantic sprawling, crazy idea. Yeah. But guess what? It's going to give rise to 50 really interesting conversations, right? It might. I hope so. Right. Exactly. And, and what you, that you simply cannot do that in professional philosophy, at least not in the analytic tradition today. I suspect you can't even really do it in the continental either. No, not really. Um, 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 there's now a kind of a system in place where you have to basically, and everything you say, you have to be invoking the contemporary literature. You cannot sort of just, here's, here's 10 propositions. Let's talk about sure. them. Right. Um, 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 yeah, and, I think there's a little more, maybe a little more space for, I mean, some do, some don't. It usually does kind of almost start as interpretation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, and I have the opposite problem to you. I mean, your, your problem is to try to rein yourself in. My problem is to try to figure out some reason why I'd want to do any philosophy, right? In other words, I, you know, given my commitments, later Wittgenstein, ordinary language philosophy, um, uh, people, uh, Anscombe and moral philosophy, as far as I'm concerned, there's actually hardly anything left to do, right? <laughs> Um, 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 you well, know. That's sort of what I'm trying to do too. Like I, like a lot of my ideas, the way I've hoped for them is that they would revivify the conversation, right? Like knowledge is merely true belief. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure how seriously I meant that when I first put it forward. I'm not sure it was a provocation in my graduate semin seminar or almost like a flippant uh, joke or something like that. It sure as hell started a conversation though. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? And yeah. so like, I thought I was making a contribution to the field, even by undercutting the basic assumptions, just because that was going to press you to defend the basic assumptions yeah. or, or adjust yeah. them or something, you know? And, yeah. um, and I, so I think we need some work at that kind of level too, just yeah. to keep, even to keep the detailed projects, you know, to create new detail projects right. or like, right. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or to, or to remind people who are, who are, who are in the weeds of the detail project, what the fucking project is. Right. I mean, I mean, there's yeah, a serious forest trees problem. 
Um, um, I would say, you know, 80% of analytic philosophers have no idea what the forest is anymore, right? I mean, sure. they're just, they're just like, you know, they're, they're examining the trees with microscopes and, um, 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 which, which, you know, is not, should never have been philosophy's job. And it's not something we do particularly well. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, that's why I love projects like yours in that, and I think that they, um, you really are. You really are not. You, you're refusing to do what they're making us do. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> um, right, you know. Uh, nice. The other thing is like how are we portraying philosophy to the to non philosophers. Yeah. Okay. What do non philosophers expect from philosophy? What do they, you know? Or what might we want them to? I guess. I mean, so you know these very detailed, you know products and moral psychology or something. I mean, they might have some kind of application, but I still think like maybe people want philosophers to grapple with the meaning of life and stuff like that. Like I know that sounds, and I understand exactly why many analytic philosophers would just go like, uh, yeah, right. The meaning of life. All right. Uh, but so I, I, like I, I love the classical philosophical project, right? Yeah. That's really trying to figure out this. Yeah. In, in a big way. Like, that's why I wanted to do this. Yeah. And, and the Greeks sort of really balanced the, the ambitious questions with the rigorous undertaking of those. Aristotle's a beautiful yeah. example. Of yeah. That, right? Whereas, you know, I think the analytic philosophers kept, you know, we have the rigor, but we lost the, we lost, like I said, we lost the forest and the kind of philosophers have the forest, but man, it's just, <laughs> it's just a lot of really fucking sloppy. Bad, it's a tangle. It's not bad. Your- Bad, re- bad reasoning. I mean, just flat out bad reasoning. And and well, I don't know. I I wouldn't condemn the whole area like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, no, uh, but I mean, I'm condemning all of analytic philosophy. Is not all like that either. I'm just right, part right. of painting. We each have. It seems to me they each share one half of the problem that <laughs> the Greeks kind of got right. The Greeks kind of got the combination right. It seems to me between the the big idea and the rigor, right? Yeah, and then um, the and then furthermore, the application to practical living. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like all those things. Yeah. And, yeah. So if, and, and that's what we think. I think that's where we get our concept of philosophy. Yeah. And we've abandoned most of it. Right. Yeah. And that's why in the book, I guess the arc sort of takes you from the most abstract to the practical, right. To so the whole latter parts of the book, we did a whole, the whole second dialogue we do was on the political philosophy. Right. I mean, all the stuff about truth and ontology and epistemology yeah, the point of it ultimately is to get you to that practical section, right? Is to get you to the point to give you the apparatus, um, um, the toolbox, right? In a sense, with which to approach how should yeah. we li- how should we live? Questions. Right? Well, I hope so. Although, in my own mind, the how we should live questions are actually secondary. Like what oh, really, really, yeah, what really absorbs me is the abstract general questions. I keep like trying to like. And, you know, issue out into the practical, but <laughs> so in that sense, you're not like the Greeks. You're more well, like they had some pretty speculative. Uh, no, they did, but I think ultimately they thought the, the ultimate purpose of this was for politics, right? I mean, that's what ultimately yeah. to them. Well, I guess I sort of did set it up that way too. I returned yeah. from uh, my my journey out of the cave back to help politically, sort of. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I'm not sure what I think about that. I, I but I just want to say like. I'm, I'm definitely intrinsically involved, whatever the outcome, with the metaphysical questions. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm intrinsically interested in those. Yeah. 
whatever you, the result. You would be interested in those, even if you weren't interested in the in practical politics. And, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let me just ask you, just in wrapping up, um, with respect to the theory of truth, um, you know, you explained the your version of the identitarianism, the fact that you know, the the true simply is the real. Um, they're not quite syn- real and true are not quite synonyms because you can't always substitute them, but that doesn't matter. Um, right. um, um, you, you, you sort of acknowledge the, the, the potential problem of a circularity um, um, in the account between the real and the true, but whether it's vicious or not will depend. Um, I guess what I wanted to sort of ask you this in, in closing on this is um, how hesitant are you? In other words, I don't know what your future project, your planned future projects are and whether you're going to develop elements of this book further, whether you're ever going to return to this question of truth again, or whether you're kind of done with it. But I guess what I would ask is what do you see if you were to go more, do more with it? What needs still to be done? What do you think is missing still? Is it just an account of translation? It seems to me like the, the, the most of the work you need to do is still on the semantical side, even though that seems to be the side that, Yes. It interests you the least, right? Um, well, it has to be on the semantic side because that's where the, the history of the theory of truth is, really. And also because I don't think I, I don't, on my own account, I don't adequately, specifically, I, I don't provide a theory that would be a straight rival to Tarski or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Or, uh, yeah. I, I can see doing a lot more work, like many different directions, including things like translation. I mean, you have to work philosophy of language through this in a, in a much more elaborate way in multiple dimensions. Yeah. Uh, now, my own plans, though, I got to say, I probably won't work on it more systematically unless a discussion of my work on this emerges. You see what I mean? Like, in other words, like, I'm – like right now I feel like I'm tossing these things into the void. So like I just did like a hundred pages on truth or whatever. I worked on it for seven years or something, you know? Uh, and yes, many questions the, that's, remain, but that's the advantage of journal articles, right? I mean, as a purely practical matter, you're more likely to get a response true. and have somebody start an argument with you. Maybe not though. You did if you did a journal piece. This is a purely private. You wouldn't be interested in pulling any of the pieces out of this and publishing them as journal pieces, would you? Yes. Yeah, you might be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. Here's one of the things that just occurred to me. Um, um, thinking about this. Um, one of the things I'd ask you is: Is your account closer to a correspondence account or closer to a deflationist account? Because I could see you saying both, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Truth is yes. truth and true and the true and the real are just the same. That sounds deflationary, right? On yeah. the other hand, it does sound to me like when you whenever you talk about the real, <laughs> it yes. sounds to me like a correspondence theory. So I mean, and I guess it comes down to whether you ultimately view truth as relational or not. Yeah, well, it has to be relational with reg- in some way with regard to the semantic entities, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, now. And I, you know, first of all, I like correspondence better than the pragmatic theory. I like it better than the coherence theory because it gives you some metaphysical realism, at least it leaves that possibility open. Right. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Because the others are idealisms. Right. If you ask me. Right. And, and so that's just wrong. But between correspondence and deflation, right. what do you think you were oh. trying more to lean towards in your, in your own mind? 
Okay, I want a reinflationary theory. Let's try that. So like I say, snow is white is true if and only if snow is white. Snow is white if and only if snow is white is true. Okay, so again, I want to find truth everywhere. It's dispensable because it's indispensable. It's dispensable because it's ubiquitous. It's dispensable because you it's in every assertion, every belief, and every moment, and every place. Right? Um, so in a way, that's the opposite of deflationism because I'm like really a truth monger. Yeah. Uh, and a reality monger. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm taking quite seriously that the basic deflationist uh, equivalence or something like that. Yeah. It yeah. seems to me that you're going to have – the problem is for you, it seems to me, is that on the semantical side, because you very much want to have this sort of metaphysical realism, you want to be a realist um, that pushes you in the direction of some sort of, of some sort of, you know, robustly relational correspondence view. The problem is that that then drives apart your semantical conception of truth and the conception of truth you want to apply and the non-semantical side. The trouble is if you go deflationary, you're either going to have to say that truth is redundant or you're going to have to say that truth is a discortational device, right? All the, the word true simply lifts quotes off of things, right? Right. But then you're going to lose that robust re- right. relation to reality, right? Um, um, and so I wonder... Um, well, truth is redundant. It's okay with me. You know, in other words, like, it is... Another, another way to put this is it's absolutely essential. Every time it's, it's How there, it every redundant time. and essential at the same time. <laughs> because it's it's redundant because it's always there and you know it is. The whole activity can't is not is incomprehensible of like believing, asserting, uh, having a conversation is incomprehensible without this like continual atmosphere of truth. Yeah. And that's why and it's redundant in the sense that you don't have to say it usually. Uh, okay, it's not redundant. Saying it is redundant. Although we do say a lot. The reason I'm pushing is because, to me, redundant and necessary are almost antonymous, right? Right? Or they're almost synonymous. If something is necessary, something is redundant. If, if somebody's rendered redundant, it means they're rendered unnecessary, right? Well, yeah, in the in the, uh, in the employment case. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to get in the weeds of Austinian analysis of redundant. <laughs> if something's redundant, it's already been said. It's already read. It's already there. Right. right? Like, you don't have to say it because it's already there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I already said it. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, but anyway. Anyway, these are the places where I see you're going to have to – and you're going to have to say something about translation if you're going to apply yes. these to utterance tokens. And I appreciate these points, man. Um, 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 Because that is the standard problem. I mean, that's what drives people to propositions is that they don't know what the fuck to say about translation. And I hardly discuss that. Yeah. I gave some examples of translation, but I didn't work the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Crispin, as always, um, I love love talking to you. Um, Likewise, man. It's the closest I ever get to feeling like I used to feel in college. When I, hang out, when I hang out with my friends, right, at exactly. night and, and, you know, and, and <laughs> this is the version you can do when you're 55 years old, right? It's right just, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, I appreciate that, Dan. Thanks well, thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to uh, speaking with you again really soon. Peace. All right, take care, my friend. 
Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.